The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond. It offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix. This is Top Docs, and I'm Mike Merrill. We are recording at the Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival. I'm speaking with Miranda Youssef about her new documentary, Art for Everybody, which is playing here at the festival. And the film explores the life and career of the artist Thomas Kincaid and ultimately reveals another side of the painter line. What brought you to this subject? That is a question that many people have been asking me, especially since I landed here at Hot Springs. As a filmmaker, I'm really interested in stories that can talk about big social, cultural, human, philosophical subjects, but through the lens of a really compelling character story. My producing partner, Tim Rummel, and I were looking for a project to do together, and we were talking with a friend of ours who's in the fine art world. This friend said, I've heard that there's some kind of interesting story around Thomas Kincaid. I was a little skeptical, (laughs) but then we looked into it and it was not only was it an interesting story, it was a mind blowing story with a lot of twists and turns and a lot of unexpected revelations. But also it really did present an opportunity to talk about these bigger subjects because Kincaid's life, like he lived this almost like Greek tragedy of a life and he was a very like larger than life figure. And He touched on various moments in American cultural history that still resonate today. For instance, he engaged very intentionally with the early culture wars in the late 80s and early 90s, which obviously with today's book bannings, et cetera, is still very resonant. And he also really turned himself into a brand. And I think that the movie talks about the costs of doing so. I think that in today's social media landscape, it's extremely timely. Which should be pointed out that Kincaid, while was wildly successful commercially for quite a while, for for over a decade, maybe two decades. I mean, I think the peak of his success was between 1992 and, say, 2002. He is not highly regarded by the art world in general. And you have no problem finding critics like Blake Gubnick, Christopher Knight are very, very critical of him. They don't soft metal it at all. You do find his his former employer, the filmmaker, Ralph Bakshi, who is willing to defend him. He is still reviled. But one thing that was a discovery for me in making the film was that actually Kincaid wasn't really being aggressively attacked by the art critical world. He actually sought out that criticism. The way that Kincaid sold his story is he would go to his adoring audiences. He did many, many events. He traveled all over the country, and he was really like a a salesman. He would stand in front of these crowds, and he would talk about, you know, well, the art critics hate me, and they say this about me and that about me. But the truth is they weren't paying attention to him because what he was doing was not considered 
actually part of the fine art world. And that was something that really bothered Kincaid quite a bit. In his early life, he's very tortured. In fact, their opening scenes are from his audio when he's 16. Yeah. He's torn between like, do I want to be a Van Gogh or do I want to be Norman Rockwell or Walt Disney? And in some ways, it seems like a lot of your thesis of your film is that it kind of buried the Van Gogh side bit yeah. when he could, for as long as he could, to pursue this Walt Disney or Norman Rockwell vision. Yeah. Finding that piece of audio was like one of those moments in post-production where you're, the heavens have opened up and showered gold upon you. It was <laughs> The tape was from 1974, and it was the first of many, many audio cassettes that he recorded for, I feel like, at least 20 years. There's a whole mass of them. And the family had them, and they didn't really know what was in them. So we, our post-production team was tasked with trying to go through that material. So it was really wonderful to hear him say, you know, essentially because he thinks he's going to be great and that this is going to be for art historians in the future. He's going to go ahead and give them some <laughs> personal testimony and give them his thoughts. I think that finding that Van Gogh quote where he says, I don't want to end up like Van Gogh, meaning... I don't want to be starving in an attic and dying in poverty. But on the other hand, I do want to be like Van Gogh, meaning I want to be considered great by the art world and by humanity forever <laughs> in perpetuity. The thing that's really interesting to me about this is that tension between wanting critical acclaim and wanting financial success, A, is something that artists in all fields, I think, feel, and B, it plays out through the entire film and it's really rooted in his personal story. So, you know, one of the things that we mentioned in the film but we didn't really get into very deeply is how poor he was when he was growing up. Thomas Kincaid grew up in very dire poverty. His mother and his father had divorced and she was a single mom raising children, anywhere from three to five children because he had half siblings. Kincaid talked at one point about like they would have like one pound of ground beef every month and it had to be stretched out for the whole month. And so he grew up thinking that hamburgers were made mostly out of oatmeal. And he hated hamburgers until he like went to college and was like, what is this? So he really grew up in poverty. And I think that that sort of created a hole in his heart, obviously a hole regarding financial insecurity. The other aspect to his childhood that was very impactful for him was that his father... A, was absent because of the divorce, and B, was a very troubling presence when he was around. So I think the other hole in Kincaid's heart was one of needing to, to be loved. Those two very primal needs, you can see those motivating him. He wanted wealth, and he got it. And he wanted fame and adulation, and he got it within the population that he was marketing to. He really still wanted to be adored by critics, but that wasn't going to happen. And I think that really bothered him for a long time. But yes, those two things really drove him. But then the underlying feelings of worthlessness were never solved. You deeply explore the ways in which Kincaid really became a business, a brand. Yeah. His original CEO, just think about that a second, how many artists have CEOs. Ken Rush you know, says, we saw him opening in the market for a brand. But one of your theses, as you said, is that this came with a personal cost, mm -hmm. this pursuit wealth in this way or right. pursuing a brand in this way. Yeah, exactly. The existence of the vaults with the dark 
works that had never been seen basically until now. Like if you have the chance to see the movie, you will be among the first people in the world to see them. The Vault is a very almost um, comically literate manifestation of somebody hiding the various other facets of their personality that maybe aren't going to fit in with what they're trying to present to the world. When I first started examining the story and like learning more and more about it, I was really intrigued by the fact that his fans had one two-dimensional view of who he was and his critics and haters had a totally different two-dimensional view of who he was. And I was like, I know there's a three-dimensional person in there somewhere and that's what I want to find. The existence of the works in the vaults, in my mind, is actually really more important than where people come down on their value artistically. Like, it's really the fact that they exist is more important to me because the point is we all contain multitudes. And when you turn yourself into a brand as aggressively as Kincaid did, you really squash all of those other parts of your personality. What I didn't really realize was the way that Thomas Kincaid was deeply positioned within the culture wars of the 90s, which now seem like a pale prologue to what we're undergoing. But he aligned himself with those who were critics of kind of the more aggressive edge of IRs, Mabel Thorpe and, and Serrano, and by the way, often overtly or invisibly positioned as queer art. And he embraced evangelical Christianity. Did you know this story? I did not know that he embrace the culture wars that way and that he engaged with them so intensely. That was a real discovery for me and part of what made the movie really click for me because like I said, I'm interested in stories that really can resonate with larger themes. Yeah, he was very vocal about the most potentially offensive work that was being put out in the late 80s and early 90s. And one of the things that we see in the film is he makes a, a reference to religious icons smeared with elephant dung. And we show the work that he's talking about as he's talking about it. And that work is The Holy Virgin Mary by Christopher Ophelia, who is a British, one of the YBAs. The way that Kincaid phrases this is icons smeared with elephant dung sounds extremely inflammatory. But when you look at the work... And when you learn about Christopher Ophelia's background, elephant dung is a sacred element in African art. Right. And he's not smearing it over anything. The way that that work actually is, is that one of the breasts of the Virgin Mary is formed out of sort of like a, a rose that's created from elephant dung. And also the work rests on these supports that are created from elephant dung. But obviously, when you hear the snap judgment, the, the sort of reductive description of that, a lot of people are completely horrified. Fascinatingly, who was framing it that way for the broader audience at that point was Rudy Giuliani. People probably don't remember. Yes. The, the show was called Sensation, and yeah. it was at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, right? So we are still living Yes, I know. It is very amazing. funny. It is very funny how like the same figures are still like playing a role in our political life. Pretty amazing. Let's just step back for a second. You know, I think it's some of the, what you do in this film is you do talk about his childhood a bit in the beginning, but then you reveal bits and pieces of war. One I thought was really interesting is his early days working with Robert Bakshi. And 
she is an interesting character because in some ways he kind of did something like what Kincaid did, which he started as the illustrator for It's the Cat. And then he went to things like The Lord of the Rings, became a more commercially viable illustrator. He, he showed his early days. It's very interesting because sometimes we see Kincaid wearing like a collared shirt. Another time he's wearing like really like Ramones level punk that period, like a black leather jacket with a chain a ratty t-shirt almost as like he was under the tutelage of Bakshi in some way I felt Kincaid at that time was in his early 20s he was not yet a born-again Christian his conversion to evangelicalism was sometime around 1981 mm. he was working for Bakshi right out of art school, basically. And he was sort of trying to be somewhat bohemian the way that he interpreted that to be. There's an interesting thing in the film where you can see this transformation where he's at Berkeley, he's got floppy long hair and kind of looks like a hippie a little bit. And then there's this very profound visual transformation when he converts to Christianity or embraces born-again Christianity. He's cleaned up. His hair is cut and short. He's got a little mustache. He's standing straight and he's wearing collared shirts and he's holding his hands folded in front of him. And he's just like profoundly visually different. And that was something about Kincaid that I saw a lot was that he was almost like a chameleon. Yeah. He had so many facets to his personality that he would embody at various points in his life. I think underneath it all, he didn't really know who he was or he didn't feel secure in who he was. It was hard for him to accept all of these pieces of himself. His daughter's talked about how he was a performance artist. This is something that they said to me individually, which I'm pretty sure they have talked over the 10 plus years since his death. They've all been doing a lot of talking and so they've come to certain joint conclusions, but it was very striking that they talked about that. Not only did his daughters call him a performance artist, but when I went to interview Susan Orlean, she just out of the brilliance of her own mind, <laughs> said, he's kind of a performance artist. And that was another one of those moments where I was like, we have a film, you know? <laughs> but there were things that we couldn't even fit into the film. For instance, we had a scene for a long time about his accent when he was speaking. Depending on the audience, he would change his accent to fit in more with the local community. He's from Northern California. Right. But when... <laughs> But when he would go to, like, Texas, he would start speaking with a drawl. Here we are in Hot Springs, the home of the sometimes so Bill Clinton, and who was also famously, like, code-switching in his ability to speak with accents. Also a boy raised poor by a single mother. That's right. One of the questions this film raises is the nature of art, broadly. And, and along a particular continuum, I'd argue, one of, which is basically, is the point of art to constantly problematize. Susan Arlene talks about ending up arguing that art can make you unhappy. Or can art bring you joy? Or even, in Kincaid's case, comfort. Obviously, it provided him comfort, and he was able to share that comfort with other people in a powerful way. You have a stat, maybe one in 20 households 
I first saw Thomas Kincaid, a girlfriend I had at grad school, and their family, they were collectors. When you think about documentary, you can take this consideration at all in terms of what pleasures documentary offers or is novels problematizing. How do you see documentary on this spectrum? Wow, it's a deep and Here's why I ask that question is because you clearly are driving towards truth, but the way you delay it in the course of this is very much like a mystery story. It's drawing upon some of the same pleasures we have and slowly having some revealed to us. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, there are some things that I'm really proud of about the film. And one of them is how like every, say, 20 minutes you go deeper. There's like yeah. a new deeper level that you're into and you just are led along without necessarily realizing that is what is happening. Documentary is storytelling. I really dislike it when people call fiction films narrative mm. as opposed to fiction or scripted because documentaries yeah. are narrative. Narrative simply means telling a story. And I think the important thing when you're telling a story is you are trying to communicate with your audience. If you are not thinking of the audience while you're doing it, you might fail to reach them. And then all of your work has been in vain. I do think that documentaries should be willing to entertain as well as educate. And I should say this is an educational documentary, but it is very entertaining. It, it does draw you in. By the way, there's all these little mini narratives. One of the ones I really like is early on, you show us how the style sort of developed and you have like a early kind of standard landscape, but there's a nice little cozy house. Yeah. You have a scene <laughs> of maybe historical Placerville where he grew up, a very idealized version of this town. It's about know, prevent Placerville. It's still realistic, but the town buildings are a little blowy <laughs> mm -hmm. and then you have those cottages these sort of Cotswolds Cotswold meets Carmel cottages that are just even each individual stone wall seems to be internally lit it's just really fascinating to see that develop that style and figure it out you almost feel him feeling more and more comfortable like more and more like that hole is being filled I feel like the lights on the cottage windows get brighter and brighter over the years there's <laughs> this great moment by the way, I should mention, in which you show these art critics some of the pieces that were stored in this vault. There are about 600 pieces that were published in, in his time, published in interesting work, published in his time, there's 6,000 vault, just 10% of them showing, and they get to see the other side. It's really interesting to see their responses, and they're various. Even that moment alone is worth the time spent with this that scene that you point out where the art critic, I call it in my head, I call it the iPad scene. Yeah. <laughs> that scene was one of the very first things that I envisioned when I was thinking about what I wanted to do with this film. Because right. I had the question. I was like, what are the art critics going to think? I want to know. I went to the interviews with this iPad that had a selection of unpublished works. And I just said, I'd like to show you something. Can you, can we do this? And I was highly gratified by the responses. And I will say that at every festival I've been to, somebody comes up to me and talks about how much they enjoy that scene. Yeah. Whether it's because, and this is really interesting, mm -hmm. whether it's because they think, oh, the critics see that they're wrong, or because they appreciate the various responses that the critics have. Because the critics are not actually all saying like, oh, I was wrong about Thomas Kincaid. They had very different reactions. But I think that that says a lot about the way that people 
are viewing the film, like the ideas that they have going into it. Yeah. It really asks, it, it's a moment where you're like, who do I identify with? <laughs> Am I one of these critics? Mm-hmm. Uh, am I somewhere else? Yeah. You're like, pull back for a second. You're like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. Am I reliant on them telling me the value of what I just saw? Right. Yeah. And I think that one of the other things that comes up a lot is there's a scene where after we've allowed the critics to kind of, I don't know if you would say beat up on Kincaid or explain why they don't think he's a legitimate fine artist, we give them their say. And then we go to what we call the fan letter scene. And there are these letters that come in that were coming. Like he had boxes and boxes of fan letters. People would write to him and tell him how much his work meant to them. And I think that for a person who would start off seeing the movie with a disdain for Kincaid, I think when you get to that scene, it really makes you stop and question. It doesn't necessarily make you question your own judgment about the work, but it might make you question like why you're judging the people who like the work. And I think that Again, like one of those big questions that the movie is about is the politicization of taste. Yeah. Early on in the development process for the film, I came across a Politico article that was talking about James Davison Hunter, who in 1991 published the book Culture Wars, which popularized that term. Hunter said in the article something like, culture wars don't always lead to shooting wars. But a shooting war is always preceded by a culture war because culture provides the justifications for violence. Right. So for me, like seeing what's been happening in our political discourse, I feel like that's incredibly relevant. If the film can get people to open up their thinking and not judge other people for their taste, then that's a win. Yeah, that, <laughs> that would be a great win. Yeah, those letters say how they say suicide like wow i think it does raise a total issue too is the art that blake gopnik talks about that's about other art that's in a discourse with the art world that's about representation that is constantly problematizing its own existence is that the only kind of art that matters and he actually says that's a tiny part of the visual blake was really interesting to talk to too because he was like look What we're talking about in the critical slash fine art establishment is like baseball stats or like master level chess. And he's like, I think it's a shame that there's this kind of status attached to the term fine art because it makes people like Thomas Kincaid feel like they're being left out of something which doesn't apply to them at all. But it's like we're all different people, and I do think that having art is important. And I mean, Kincaid really wanted art to be accessible to everybody. I mean, it's called Art for Everybody. One of the things that's very subtle but you can see in the film is that in his house, there's some photos of his childhood home in there. There's no art on the walls. And when he got to an age where he was able to paint, when he was probably around 12 or 13, he started painting. He put his own paintings on the wall of his house so that there could be art on the walls of where he was growing up. And he wanted people who had been in that situation to be able to have art in their house. That's part of his whole mission in making things like the plates or mugs or gift cards. I mean, the calendars. One line that 
was in the movie for a while and then we ended up cutting it out at the last minute was his wife, Nanette, says our calendar was second only to the Playboy calendar in terms of selling. (laughs) And what people would do is they would buy the calendar and then they would cut the pictures out and they would put them on their walls because that's what they could afford. One of the things that's happened in the past maybe 25 years or so is that there's been a complete reconsideration of Norman Rockwell. Yes. So Rockwell was sort of considered just an illustrator. The higher establishment never recognized him. And I think probably, let's say 20, 15, 20 years ago, I, I started seeing there was actually a big show, like I say, the Brooklyn Museum, Rob, of his work. And we were going to it. And, and I think probably one of the ends for him was that he picked a social changes were happening, whether he knew it or people knew it at the time or not. Do you anticipate that there could be a reconsideration of Kincaid in the future? I'm not in the fine art world, so I don't really know. It certainly seems that people who see the film are thinking more deeply about what his work is. And he does have a couple of people in the fine art world who are in the film who kind of champion him in different ways. So, for instance, the internationally renowned artist Jeffrey Valance is one of our wonderful favorite characters in the film. And Jeffrey sees a lot of value in Kincaid's work because he approaches it from a sort of a spiritual lens. Aaron Moulton, who's a curator, is also in the film, and he talks about how maybe the real move here is to consider the painter of light pieces, accept those into the fine art world. And there's a sense, like some of the people who, for instance, Ralph Bakshi says he's really painting his feelings about the cheapness of our society, which nobody else that I talked to (laughs) had that opinion. But, you know, that's an interesting way to look at the pieces. He's never going to have that social issue angle that, Norman Rockwell did, because that was basically antithetical to what he was doing. He was trying to give people a sense that there's this comforting place that is not being roiled by social upheaval or challenges. So he just doesn't have that. He was deliberately not doing that. It might be that if you consider... Kincaid's entire body of work, including the dark unpublished works, that maybe that could prompt some kind of reconsideration of his work. But who knows? Thank you for being here. Thank you for this film. Like I said, it's really fascinating. As you said, painting a 3D picture of somebody who on both sides is two-dimensional. If there's one thing that I want people to walk out of the film with, It is the importance of humanizing each other. I feel that our current political discourse and our social media landscape and all of these other forces are working to encourage us to dehumanize each other. I'm making an argument and also kind of an attempt with the film to rehumanize someone who has been dehumanized by or flattened by a lot of people. I think that we have to rehumanize each other because that's the only way that we're going to be able to move forward as a society. Thank you, Mike. It was a pleasure. Top Docs is a production of Willie Media. This episode was produced by Ken Jacobson and Mike Merrill 
and edited by Mike. 